My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sean Howard and Sandra Barr. One of the political drives of the Conservative government under Prime Minister Stephen Harper was to make whatever use it could of both state and allied non-state institutions to promote increased militarism in the culture and as part of Canadian national identity. A couple of years ago, a Toronto businessman with Conservative Party connections conceived a plan to construct a new monument to Canada's war dead. At least some who heard about the plan were initially incredulous. Not only was there skepticism that existing monuments were somehow insufficient to the task of commemoration, but there was also amusement and disbelief that the intent was to construct an enormous statue with outstretched arms, called Mother Canada, smack in the middle of a national park on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, a site with no historical connection to Canadian involvement in the World Wars, in such a way that one of the key natural features of that park would be significantly damaged and altered. But the plans to put a monument in Green Cove were serious, and they soon had the support of the Conservative Cabinet, which issued a directive that remains secret, but that seems to have been behind Parks Canada dealing with the proposal, at least so far, with a process that has been both unusual and minimal, and with something very much less than a critical eye. Once it became clear that the proposal had powerful backing and momentum, some residents of the local community, of Cape Breton Island more broadly, and of Nova Scotia as a whole, began to express serious concerns. These concerns came from a number of different perspectives, but by the beginning of June of this year, they had coalesced into an organization called Friends of Green Cove, which has a single clear objective, preventing the construction of the monument and protecting the, quote, unique place of peace and beauty on Parks Canada land in the Cape Breton Highlands National Park, end quote. Sean Howard teaches political science at Cape Breton University and has been a long-time participant in movements for peace and social justice, and he is the spokesperson for the group. Sandra Barr has for almost 40 years been a geology professor at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia, and her research has mostly been focused on Cape Breton Island, including Green Cove. They speak with me about the proposed monument, the site, and the campaign to save Green Cove from the damage that this monument would cause. And I should add that there have been some developments since this interview was recorded. In particular, it emerged that the new Liberal government has committed to not providing the monument with any public funding. And this is in addition to what Howard and Barr had already heard from the Liberals, that they've committed to some kind of review for the project, though the details of that review are not yet clear. I spoke with Howard and Barr by Skype to phone from Nova Scotia. My name is Sean Howard, and since June 2nd, I've been proud and honored to act as spokesperson for the group Friends of Green Cove. Professionally, I'm adjunct professor of political science at Cape Breton University, and also I'm a creative writer, a published poet, and been involved in the peace movement and other social justice campaigns for many years. Friends of Green Cove is a completely informal, occasionally chaotic, but often efficient citizens group with one single goal, 
many perspectives, but they all converge on one single goal, which is, as the name implies, to save Green Cove on the Cabot Trail in Cape Breton from destruction in the form of the Mother Canada War Memorial that's been proposed. We believe it doesn't belong there, and it would be a disaster if it was built there. And it's been a very simple campaign built around that fundamental issue, officially for the last six months, although we did lots of campaigning before that. My name is Sandra Barr. I'm a geology professor at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. I've been teaching at Acadia for almost 40 years, and my professional research has been in large part in Cape Breton Island. And I first worked in the Green Cove area in 1978. And over the years, I've been back there many times leading field trips in the area. It is one of the best examples of the rocks in that area. So the site itself means a lot to me professionally. Green Cove is on the eastern side of Cape Breton Island within the Cape Breton Highlands National Park. It's one of the sites that as a visitor to the park, you're encouraged to stop at and walk out on the rocks. There's a small parking area and a pathway. The rocks are beautifully exposed on a glacially polished surface. So unlike many coastlines, that area is very exposed and kept free of seaweed. And so you can see the rocks very, very well indeed. And waves crashing along there, uh, lots of seabirds, and just a very peaceful and beautiful place. The site is a rounded rock outcrop. And the proposal is to build a very large statue. The actual size of that statue keeps changing a bit, but it's certainly very large in the order of 24 meters in size. And it's associated with a viewing platform and various other constructions that would basically cover the whole area of the outcrop. It also involves an increase in size of the parking lot and the construction of other amenities. And overall, it would pretty much modify the whole area of that part of the coastline of Cape Breton Island. I've never been involved in this kind of a group or this kind of an activity before. I first heard about the Green Cove proposal almost two years ago now from a woman who's a local resident in Dingwall, quite close to Green Cove. And when I first heard about it, I thought it must be some kind of joke or something. I couldn't believe she sent me the link to the foundation's website. And I went and I looked at the proposed structure. And I really didn't think it could possibly be a serious issue. So I kind of put it to the back of my mind. And then I started hearing more and more about it. And so I started to get really concerned because in spite of what I thought to be the absurdity of the proposal on many many levels. It did seem to be gaining momentum, so I decided some action was needed. So I approached the Atlantic Geoscience Society and the members of my own department here, and we wrote letters to Mark Eiking as the MP for that area and, uh, you know, tried to get some opposition. And in the course of doing that, I found that Many earth scientists find it not a good idea to build a structure like that on a site, especially one that's located in a national park. So then when the Friends of Green Cove became established, I certainly became a major part of that. What's your understanding of where the plan for the monument came from? It was the brainchild, I guess, or the inspiration of a Toronto-based businessman, Tony Trigiani. 
who has connections to the Conservative Party, in fact is a friend of the late Jim Flaherty, and through various conversations with people in Cape Breton, he felt, and our group has never challenged his sincerity on this, we just challenged the wisdom of the location. He appears to be sincerely of the view that an additional level of tribute is needed to Canada's war dead and that Cape Breton and Green Cove in particular would be a good place for it. So he was able to set up his foundation and present his case to the Harper cabinet, mainly through this connection to Jim Flaherty. And very early on, a cabinet memorandum was issued, which we haven't been able to see or make public yet, which is quite an unusual procedure. So we don't know what the actual directions to Parts Canada were, but it was very clear from early letters from Parts Canada and the Environment Department that they were told to fast track and approve this process so that the substantial construction could begin by now and the site could be open for a very, very grand opening on Canada Day 2017. In other words, and this is a, a point we've tried to make often, the instruction to Parts Canada was not to see whether it should go in Green Cove, but to make sure that it went there. And we regarded that from the beginning, as do many former Parts Canada managers, as an abusive process and an inappropriate direction to the agency. So from the very beginning, it's been a rather odd process. It's ostensibly an entirely private development in a national park, and there's been a trend in that direction which has been lamented by many supporters of the national parks during the Harper era. But this would, I think, would set the worst precedent yet if this was to go ahead, because it would entirely efface a very, very precious place, an obviously special place, that if it isn't protected under the national park's mandate, where is? So it had a lot of private momentum with a lot of very influential, powerful people behind it, including the Prime Minister, Peter McKay, former Defence and Justice Minister, with obviously a lot of clout in Atlantic Canada, we don't know how much private funding it got behind it, and from an early point, obviously wanted to draw on public funds to support its venture too. And just to reiterate what I said in the introduction, though other aspects of the new Liberal government's response to the Mother Canada proposal remain to be fleshed out, it was announced after this interview was recorded that the monument would not be receiving public funding. So it's been a most peculiar unusual application that according to some experts, including Sandra's colleague, Dr. Ian Spooner, environmental assessment expert at Acadia, such a proposal should never have been seriously considered by Parts Canada. It should have, on the face of itself, it is so egregiously inappropriate and incommensurate with Parts Canada's mandate that it should not have been considered. And we shouldn't have had to be engaged 24-7 for the last six months in trying to stop it happening. Green Cove has no past history of any involvement in people going off to war from that site or anything. It's just an isolated area. It used to have a fishing community prior to the establishment of the park. But other than that, and some claims made by the proponents, things like on their website that it would have been the last site seen by many soldiers as they departed for Europe and so on are completely inaccurate. You couldn't possibly see it from the places where those people were departing from, and it certainly wouldn't be the last piece of Canada that they saw before they went over to Europe. So, you know, there were just many myths put about by the proponents that were a little upsetting to those of us who see Green Cove as very special for other reasons. Many of those clearly inaccurate claims that can be very quickly and very comprehensively debunked were collected in the form of a so-called draft detailed impact analysis done in late May by Stantec Consulting Limited, who are a reputable company, but they also have a vested interest in the project going ahead. And they presented this report and gave the public all of two weeks to respond to it. And it contains many inaccuracies, including some deliberately, we think, misleading claims about the effect on the rocks and the geology 
trying to give the impression that almost all the formation will be preserved and there really won't be any detrimental impact for people who love the rocks. And I know that flies in the face of what Sandra knows very, very well over the course of 35 years. And I think that really rang some alarm bells for us, that if there were some half-truths at best being presented as facts, and there was a fast-track process with very powerful political support behind it, we knew we had to raise this as not just a local issue, but a national issue in a hurry, because otherwise it would get steamrolled through. But I just want to check with Sandra that I'm being fair there to Stantec to be so critical towards them. Yes, they really glossed over many aspects. For example, they said the construction would only destroy 25% of the outcrop. And if you look at the design of the proposed project, it would certainly cover over a lot more than 25% of the outcrop. And why is 25% acceptable anyway, you know? That's right. I mean, why would it be considered acceptable to destroy any of this unique outcrop? So to say, as they claim in the report, that it has a negligible effect is certainly misleading. Tell me about how your group initially came together. I think Sandra was involved a little bit before me, certainly. I mean, I had the same reaction when I first heard about the project. I remember vividly seeing a report in the Cape Breton Post about it with a graphic of the unbelievable statue. I just turned the page, felt unwell, and hoped that I was either going to wake up or that the nightmare would fade. Many people felt that. But there are a few people who have been involved for much longer than me who took it seriously from the beginning, including people from the area. It's not at all correct to say that everyone in the Green Cove area supports the project. There's significant unhappiness about it. It's a divided community there. But other people in Cape Breton too took it seriously, thank God, from the beginning and tried to get some momentum behind the campaign. And then it was in the early spring of this year that I realized there was very serious momentum behind it. It was partly from reading some quotes from Sandra, actually, in local media reports. Oh, my God, this really could happen. So my wife and I decided to get involved. We knew some of the people from different peace activism and other tangents at the university here. As I mentioned earlier, it was extremely informal, non-hierarchical, and we just decided we just needed a strong, clear name to evoke what we were about and a proper national presence if we could have it and some serious media work because otherwise we were in danger, as can sometimes happen with campaigning, of expressing outrage more to each other than the general public. And we were terrified that the public wouldn't appreciate the full magnitude of what was being proposed and just hear, there's going to be a nice new tribute to our veterans in a beautiful part of the country. What's wrong with that? So we needed to tell people what was wrong with the specifics of the plan and the momentum behind the group built very, very fast. Now, unfortunately, in terms of the national timing, we had this very flawed report from Stantec in late May. Then we had a ridiculously short two-week time period to respond. And although 6,000 people deluged Parks Canada with, generally speaking, their opposition, I think it was like 80, 90% opposed to the project, most Canadians, by the time that window closed, hadn't heard about it. So at that point, we had to redouble our efforts and really try to get a national profile. And I think we succeeded from our press conference launch on June 2nd. Within three or four weeks, we were starting to get some national press coverage. And uh, since, I think really, Mushroom does an issue coast to coast to coast with some national political figures like Elizabeth May and others getting involved. And millions of Canadians now know about it, take it very seriously and predominantly share our concerns and feel, I think, the same sense that we felt that just as they learn about it, they find out there's no public consultation process for them to take part in. There were two local meetings that weren't serious consultation meetings anyway, and then that was it. So once we got going in the summer, we've just kept going since. We haven't needed to formalize or regularize. 
there are lots of people fighting the good fight in lots of different ways and it's a very organic process with remarkably little friction or dissent in terms of priorities because I think we have such a clear focus. We have this beautiful place and we have to save it and we have to just hang in there. And obviously we were very preoccupied about trying to see if we could build enough protest to at least delay the process through the federal election and hope that the change of government might lead to a change of heart and a return to parts of Canada's own best practices and proper role and responsibility. And that's what we hope will happen now. But it was exceedingly straining and nerve-wracking, and it really has been 24-7 for six months. It's been very difficult, yes. And we have a wonderful website, and all this is done on a volunteer basis. People have contributed Many geologists have stepped forward and one of them who felt he had to remain anonymous because he works for the federal government did a beautiful photo essay on Mm -hmm. what would be lost if this construction were to go ahead at Green Cove and that's available on the Friends of Green Cove website. Another geologist, a man named Robert Wiebe, who's now retired, he was the first person who actually worked on that area from a geological perspective. And when I came to Nova Scotia, I followed up on his work. And when he heard about this, he also wrote a very strong letter and made the point that a construction like this would never be allowed, for example, in Acadian National Park in Maine, where he is also done a lot of geological work and you know he was appalled that something like this would even be considered for construction in a national park. One of the saddest things for me about this is the division it has caused in the community around that area. Many of the people with whom I've spoken in the area are really almost afraid to state their opinion because It's an area with high unemployment, as is much of Cape Breton Island, and the idea has been put forward by the proponents that this would create a lot of jobs in the area, would increase the number of tourists coming. Many of us in Friends of Green Cove certainly would refute that. There hasn't been much evidence that this would actually increase tourism. But a certain number of the population in that area of Cape Breton Island in particular, you know, they're quite desperate for job opportunities, and I think this is their main motivation for supporting it. Certainly a few people have said, you know, it's a beautiful structure and so on, but most people who support it don't seem to take that approach but talk more about the jobs that it might create. Yes, and I think we've tried to be sensitive to that from the beginning. And our line is that national parks, including in Cape Breton, obviously, should be really supported as much as possible and in all appropriate ways. And the Harper government cut funding to Parks Canada by $25 million. They limited marketing budgets, particularly marketing in the U.S., and they've cut staff and services. So that's made people even more desperate there. And I agree that it's been horribly, horribly divisive. There have been certain accusations thrown at our group too. I think because we ran such an effective campaign, there were people who felt we didn't care about the local community, even though we had members from the local community. There were people who thought we didn't care about the veterans, even though we had many veterans in our group. And it just became very painful. And it was all avoidable because, to go back to the fundamental point, if there had been a clear-eyed, rational appraisal of the project in the beginning, it would have been quashed in the beginning and all this could have been avoided. I mean, it's a secondary and separate debate about whether this country needs another war memorial and what messaging and what design that should be outside the national parks but it just simply should not have been contemplated in a national park anywhere in the country. 
But we will, going forward, I mean, even if the project is rejected, we will, I think one thing that the group would be committed to would be to trying to think of alternative ways of developing and increasing visitor numbers to what is a stunningly beautiful national park that doesn't need to be damaged in order to attract visitors. We've been lucky, I think, that we've got a range of skills and a range of contacts and a range of perspectives that have really come together well and served us well. I felt all along that we've had the arguments and we've had the experts. What we needed to do was buy ourselves the time because we were up against a government that I don't think gave a damn about the scientific objections or the environmental objections or the process objections and didn't really care about what the public service thought or the muzzled scientists within the public service thought. So we had to just keep going until we got a break and the break we hope is to change the government. The other thing to say briefly is that there's a kind of two levels to the group. There's, I would say, two to three dozen very active, frequently campaigning members, most based in Cape Breton, but also the province and beyond, but mainly obviously Nova Scotia. And then we have a much broader base that we can tap into, people who have subscribed on our website, and uh, that's around a 1,000 people, including people internationally, but certainly all across Canada. And we can send out alerts to them, asking them to write, for instance, to the new environment minister, Catherine McKenna, or whoever, at different crisis points in the campaign. And that's worked really well for us because there are a lot of people who care a lot about this and are more than happy to spend some time writing a letter or making a phone call or just raising the issue with their local MP and keep up the pressure and keep up the profile. And it's been amazingly effective, I think. So you've touched on this a bit in what you've said already, but just to make it perfectly clear for listeners, talk a bit more about the official process such as it is around the proposal for this monument. What has the official process been so far? And what elements of that process remain that your group or other people who are concerned could intervene in to express their opinion about this proposal? Well, the latter point we're not sure about. We've written to the new environment minister and she's written back a very friendly short note saying she's going to thoroughly review the file. She says, I will take the necessary time to review the project to date, including the environmental assessment and public consultation process. I appreciate your interest in the conservation of Canada's natural heritage. And previous Liberal spokespeople going into the election, for instance, John McKay was the party's spokesperson on environmental issues. He had slammed the Harper government's public consultation process, as had Mark Eiking and the other Cape Breton Liberal MP, Roger Kuzner. So the Liberal Party definitely believes it's been woefully inadequate. There's been nothing. There's been the one report by Stantec that there wasn't a single public meeting to discuss. There were two public meetings before that supposed draft impact analysis came out. As I mentioned, they were both in the local area. They weren't anything resembling a national conversation, and they weren't actually even fora where experts could put the counter case. They were essentially pro-foundation rallies, one organized by the local MP who tried his best, and then one organized basically in English by the foundation, which General McKenzie spoke. I mean, neither of those resembled a sober review, and they were both before this fundamentally important report came out. Then we had the two-week window that we talked about. 6,000 people responded, most of them on our side, or rather on the side of Green Cove and the national parks. But then that window shut, even though many people were calling for an extension. So there's been nothing formally open to us since then. We're all supposed to go away and wait for Parts Canada to come to a considered decision. And we didn't have any faith in that process with the Harper government so obviously intervening and meddling in the process. So the minimum we need now is for the new government to step back, review how it's been handled, review the initial direction given to Parts Canada, and really look at the case and try to get a proper study done. If they feel that's necessary, what they may decide 
is they look at what they've got from the foundation, they match it against their own mandate and their own responsibilities and what development historically means in a national park and what it should mean and what the Liberal Party election platform said it should mean and decide that they can simply reject the project now and put an end to the saga. That's our main hope and plan A, and we think that's entirely reasonable. But plan B would be to actually take seriously environmental assessment and expert review. And I would love to have a meeting where Sandra finally had the chance, for instance, to cross-examine the authors of the Stantec report, who spent one day at Green Cove, September 30th, 2014. They went to Green Cove for one day and then wrote up all this stuff about how it wouldn't really hurt the rocks and they'd want to be fine and you could walk around it and there's plenty more granite anyway. That's one day compared to 37 years of study. I mean, I would like to be at that meeting. And we never, (laughs) ever, ever had the chance to do that. (laughs) No, and I've requested it many times. I've asked many times to go to Green Cove with the Stantec people to talk to them about the plans, but there's been no response to that. No. I mean, some of that report, I'm afraid, is I don't think it's too harsh to say it was pseudoscience. There's also this claim that the foundation comes up with occasionally that if the Mother Canada is built, it will attract 173,000 extra visitors. And we've seen no empirical basis for that claim. So all the downsides have been factored out in this pseudo-scientific way, and no serious tourist impact study has been done. So at a minimum, that needs to be done. But we do think there's enough evidence already out there and has been from the beginning to allow the new government to actually come to a pretty speedy conclusion that... Uh, no, you can't build this here. You can consider other options, other designs, whatever, but this is not what appropriate development in a national park can possibly look like, because if it's appropriate, then what is inappropriate? And what does Friends of Green Cove have planned in the next while? It's hard to answer that to the extent that we don't know the timeline that the new government has. As I say, we've received this very encouraging correspondence from the new minister, and obviously the file is about to be reviewed. All we're doing at the moment is being vigilant, being as plugged in as possible, working very closely with local politicians, people in parts of Canada, just trying to keep our eyes open so that nothing slips through. Keep an eye on what the foundation obviously is doing, because they're not going to give up and throw in the towel. And we'll try to keep up the respectful tone that we've had and make the case in every available reasonable opportunity. My father asked me to be sure to pass on a message to you when he heard I was doing this interview. He's 94 years old and a World War II veteran, and he's strongly opposed to this memorial because he thinks that it detracts from the existing memorials, and in particular the Vimy Ridge Mm -hmm. Memorial, because it doesn't have any direct connection to the sites of the wars or to Mm -hmm. the people who died in those wars. Yes, we haven't had a chance to really touch on the commercialization aspect. It's turned a lot of people's stomachs, I think. I mean, the trademarking of Mother Canada, which offended the Vimy Foundation so much, the kind of merchandise they have in mind, the one-dimensional glorification of the war, which is so different to the somber Vimy Memorial or the National War Memorial. There are all these other levels, too. I think it's right to mention these other aspects. It is inappropriate. In the opinion of many veterans in our group, it's fundamentally disrespectful as a form of remembrance. It's a kind of parody of remembrance. So we want to raise that as an aspect, but also always keep the focus on the land, on the rock, on the sea, on the park. You have been listening to my interview with Sean Howard and Sandra Barr of Friends of Green Cove. To find out more about their work, go to friendsofgreencove.ca. That's friendsofgreencove.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.